Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Well, here we are after moving cross-country from Rochester, New York to Golden, Colorado, recording an episode of Eyes on Success in our new home for the first time. Anyway, this week, we'll be talking about an infantryman who lost his vision and both legs in combat during World War II at the age of 19. We'll speak with Harry Wetterer about his father, Don, and his experiences both as a member of the Army and afterwards, and how he overcame institutional and social barriers and went on to have a family and rewarding career in which he worked tirelessly to improve the lives of other people with vision loss. And we'll also speak with Harry about the book he wrote about his father, Don Wedower. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Harry Wedower. One of the things I learned in writing this book was that that the human condition is one that we all want to be optimists. You know, I think we're all optimists by nature. And I think that you know, the, the, the struggle for all of us is to uh, not allow barriers be erected between us and that trait of optimism. And, and I think my, my father's story is, is, a, is a perfect example of that. You know, simply he, someone who simply would not be kept down and, and would always, uh, I think, maintain sort of that core optimism and determination. And if Don Wedower could stay optimistic in the face of his extreme injuries, we all ought to be able to do that. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible by Logan Tech, makers of the electronic take-anywhere six-dot braille label maker that produces crisp, clear braille that strikes, scores, and cuts in seconds. More information on our family of devices and products is at logantech.com. Logan Tech, improving quality of life with technology. Let's start by meeting Harry and learning a bit about his background before we start talking about his father's story. Hi, I'm uh, Harry Wetterer. I live in uh, Huntingtown, Maryland, and I am a uh, first-time author of, uh, of a book entitled The Bravest Guy that we'll be talking about. It's a book about my father. What's your father's name? It's uh, Donald H. Wetterer. As far as my background, I am a retired uh, U.S. Navy officer. I retired as a uh, commander and uh, served for 20 years as a uh, naval flight officer, as a aircraft navigator and weapons systems operator. And uh, in my second career, I'm a uh, an attorney in, in public service. Uh, I live in the uh, Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, area. And as I noted, this book is my my first foray into the, uh, the publishing world, and I uh, it originally intended as a scrapbook, but then just kind of one thing led to another, and uh, and here we are. So you actually contacted us about being on the show. How did you first hear about Eyes on Success? It was through the American Foundation uh, for the Blind. I had worked with them in researching this book because uh, they have a 
is this uh, probably well-known and extensive uh, Helen Keller archives. And my father had actually met her in 1946. And I wanted to learn more about that meeting, if I could, in you know, more generally her background. Uh, and also my father was a winner of the, uh, the Gale Medal, which is uh, the American Foundation for the Blind's highest award. Oh, well, thank you to the AFB. They're a great organization. We've actually aired a number of episodes about the American Foundation for the Blind, and the most recent one was just a few months ago, number 1718, in which we spoke with Helen Selsden, their archivist, about the Helen Keller archives that she has been working on for years. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 This week's focus topic is Don Wedower's experiences in the military and also afterwards and the book that his son Harry wrote about them. So in your introduction, you mentioned that you were a former military officer. And before we uh, started recording this interview, you mentioned that one of your sons was in the military. And the book is about your dad's experiences in the military and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about your dad's initial experiences in the military and how that was going for him? He uh, was drafted when we used to have a, a draft in this country in, uh, in 1943, just after his 18th birthday. And of course, this was right in the middle of World War II. He actually had an opportunity for a draft deferment uh, because in those days, if you had a parent who had a small business and you could get a deferment for being an operator of that small business. He also was encouraged to become a priest and he resisted that as well and resisted any other deferment opportunity that he had because I think it was, it was common of that generation. They were just determined to serve. So he was inducted and he had opportunities to go into the Navy. He had opportunities to go into what was then called the Army Air Force. Turned both of those down. He just was determined to go in the Army because he was offered a position they call the uh, Advanced Specialized Training Program or ASTP, meaning that after basic training of how to learn how to become a soldier, the Army would send you to college, and then you would receive your degree and become an officer. So it was seemingly a perfect opportunity for my dad. Um, but I suppose as so often happens in wartime, it didn't quite work out that way. After he had reported for basic training down in Texas, he was informed uh, rather casually that the ASTP program was being closed down because the Army uh, didn't need as many officers. They really needed uh, troops on the front lines of combat because of uh, uh, action in Europe and, and anticipated action against Japan. So he and, and, and literally tens of thousands of other uh, soldiers who were in that program were redirected into infantry divisions for frontline combat, um, which is what happened to my dad. So his dreams of college or the Army sending him to college were uh, quickly taken away, and, uh, and he was sent overseas to, to serve in the front lines just inside Germany. And I gather from the book that he saw some pretty intense fighting while he was over there, right? Well, he uh, 
completed all of his army training in Texas and then was uh, sent uh, overseas to uh, Belgium uh, as part of the 99th Infantry Division and then put on the front lines uh, just inside uh, Germany uh, in an area called the Hurtgen Forest or the Ardennes on the Belgian side and was facing uh, what the Germans had constructed called the Siegfried Line, which was a series of fortifications. And uh, this was November of 1944. And then while in the middle of a patrol uh, with uh, other soldiers, he stepped on a mine and uh, as a result lost both of his legs and in one of his eyes and was at that point left for dead. Just miraculously, I think just because of the cold clotted his wounds, he somehow managed to survive and was taken back to a hospital in Liège, Belgium, about 30, 40 miles uh, to the west to recuperate and recover before coming home. Four days after being wounded by the mine and while in Liège, the hospital he was in was hit by a German uh, terror weapon called the V1, which was a basically a flying bomb uh, that we, was used to terrorize uh, civilian populations. And as a result of that blast, had a detached retina in his other eye, which led to his uh, total vision loss. That certainly wasn't the experience he was expecting to get out of the Army. So that series of events was something I kind of sort of knew about growing up, but, you know, I think it was, it was common of that generation. They never really talked much about their World War II experiences. So I sort of wanted to unlock, you know, sort of those mysteries uh, about my father because I just didn't know a lot about him. I sort of knew what he had done in his you know, later life as a public servant and as someone who was really a national leader in providing opportunities for those with vision loss, but I wanted to learn more. And so I just spent the better part of uh, way too long, I think 16 years, kind of gathering that story um, because I, I thought it was a story that would hopefully resonate and, and be an inspiration to you know, people in, in uh, a lot of different fields, and, and including those with vision loss. Now, you obviously, from talking to you and also from reading the book, find your father very inspiring. But the title of the book, The Bravest Guy, that wasn't your phrase. That came from somebody else. It did. Um, it came from a mentor of his, uh, a person by the name of Joe Miller, who uh, was a double amputee himself, uh, like my father, who my father met while recuperating in uh, one of the army hospitals, uh, Bushnell Army Hospital in Utah. And you know, Joe Miller uh, just had this terrific, sunny disposition, very positive attitude, and was a great mentor for the young uh, you know, double amputees is to learn how to walk. And he was an inspiration to my dad as far as to learning how to walk on the prosthetics. While learning to do that, of course, my father was dealing with the fact that his vision was fading and he would eventually lose it. And this occurred while he was uh, at Bushnell. And I think Joe Miller sensed that my dad was 
at a inflection point where he could easily fall into a uh, you know a depression because of you know everything kind of cascading down on him. So he had written a friend of my father's in in Iowa who had subsequently written back to my dad and said, you know, Joe Miller said uh, you're the bravest guy he had ever seen. And I think that sort of phrase really resonated with my dad because, you know, Joe Miller had obviously seen a lot of brave guys, young soldiers, you know, undergoing therapy in, in Utah. And to give that accolade to my dad, I think something that, you know, 16 years later still, I think, resonated with my father and, and I think is a very apt uh, title for the book. So for many people, this type of injury, you know, could be a devastating experience. And, you know, people react to it in very different ways. Some people would totally give up and be depressed and not being willing to deal with it. But somehow your dad battled through this and was able to, you know, find what he could do in life and overcome these injuries. Can you talk a little bit about how he overcame those burdens and what got him motivated, how he got back into, you know, being a part of the real world again? Yes, I think he had sort of wonderful mentorship from his fellow vets um, because he spent probably the better part of two years in you know army hospitals um, around other vets. But he was fortunate enough that they, the, the veterans he was around were all very, very focused on uh, you know, having careers uh, you know, doing something with their lives, you know, overcoming their, you know, perceived handicaps, and I put that in quotes, but had very positive dispositions and outlooks. And I think they were really great about motivating each other and pushing each other along and recognizing when each was struggling. Your dad also met Helen Keller at some point. How did that come about? At that time, he was at Dibble Army Hospital, which was a, actually a, an eye treatment center out in Palo Alto, California. And he spent a couple of visits there, if you will. And she was visiting the hospital, and I believe it was the hospital public affairs person you know, was aware of my dad's story and thought, you know, he would be a just a great person for her to meet. And, you know, it would be kind of a mutually beneficial. And, you know, she toured a lot of hospitals during the war. And so it came about and it was about a 40 to 45 minute, you know, meeting and just a walk. And she, you know, placed her hands on his lips, as I guess she often did to you know, kind of interpret what was being said. And I think that really resonated with my dad. And I think he was so impressed by what she had overcome and her level of reading and knowledge. I think that kind of sparked a you know, little bit of a flame in him that, you know, I, I can I can do this, too. Helen Keller was an inspiration to so many people. Were there other things that spurred your dad also to overcome his challenges? Briefly, I think the other sources of how he got to where he was, was uh, just his personal qualities. My dad is just one of these people who's just always been an optimist. Um, he's simply a man that uh, is extraordinarily resilient. You just can't keep him down. <laughs> And I've always admired that about him. And along with that, he is somebody who just is incredibly, incredibly determined and persistent. Um, you know, if I were to describe him in one word, I would say persistent. 
And then I, I think my mother has always been just a terrific, I think, source of strength for him. And I think at, at one crucial crossroads in his life, and I think I mentioned it in the book, where he had finally, his vision was, was gone for good. Uh, and this was in the early 60s, and he was you know, at a point where he easily could have fallen into despair because he had no real career opportunities ahead of him at that time. And, you know, and five children and, and, and the expectations of supporting a family. She, uh, I think, really put a stark, you know, reality in front of him, you know, that you have to move on, sort of, you know, fade into depression and, and look back. And I think that's the tonic that he needed. And, uh, you know, he went on to a, a wonderful career in public service. One of the things that really struck me in the book, and you've alluded to it a little bit in our conversation, is that so many of the other wounded soldiers were really forming an informal support network, if you will, for each other and encouraging each other and teasing each other if somebody tried to give up a little bit and wouldn't let anybody fall behind. But in the middle of this positive atmosphere where everybody was pulling for each other, that your dad really seemed to take on a little bit more of a guiding role among the fellow injured soldiers. You know, I think that's right because uh, of the fact that he had, he had also lost an eye at that point. He had fading vision. And because I think it was that you know, characteristic of my dad just being such an, an optimist, he could bounce back from his worst days. And I think that as much as that they served as a tonic for him, I think that, you know, he served as a tonic for them, particularly because of the fact that he was absolutely determined to go to college and you know, sort of get on with life, you know, rather than, uh, you know, sort of focus on, you know, woe is me. He, he really wanted to um, you know, go on to uh, you know, have a career and, and do all the things that he'd always sort of dreamed of. And what was his career? He uh, started off, well, not uh, kind of going sideways. He had wanted to be a, a, a teacher, and, and that uh, being in the early 1950s didn't, didn't work out as, as someone with, with, with fading vision. Um, and then he worked in customer service at Sears uh, for a number of years, handling kind of customer complaints. Where he really found his calling was in public service as first a counselor at the Florida Bureau of uh, Blind Services, uh, which eventually became the Division of Blind Services, which he headed starting in 1975 and really developed that into, I think, uh, what was acknowledged as the best uh, such uh, agency in the country and served what I believe was you know, the largest or one of the largest populations of, of those with vision loss in the country. And coincidentally and ironically, he really realized a dream for that agency that Helen Keller had actually started uh, way back in the 1930s and in 1941 when she had, had personally lobbied in Florida for the creation of that agency. And, uh, 35 years later or so, my dad you know, made it into, as I said, one of the best agencies in the country. That is quite an accomplishment. What kinds of things did he do while he was at the Florida Division of Blind Services? There were so many things that he did there. He uh, co-founded what is uh, now known as the Conklin Center for the Multi-Handicapped in Daytona Beach, Florida, which 
you know, services the needs of, of those who have vision loss and, and also other handicaps. He developed a series of uh, regional centers that serve the visually impaired uh, throughout Florida. He developed uh, a scholarship fund to send promising you know, young students who had vision loss to some of the finest you know, universities uh, in the country and provided access uh, to those with, uh, with working dogs to facilities you know, throughout Florida and a whole range of initiatives. And, and you know, as a result of that service became a, uh, you know, both a state and a national leader. One interesting distinction that you drew in the book, I thought, was among the attitudes of prospective hiring people and, of course, the rest of society as well, that some people would look upon the wounded soldiers and have pity for them and say, well, maybe I'll take you in because, oh, you poor thing, you can't do anything otherwise. And some people would respond to them with an attitude that said, well, hey, you know, if you've been able to overcome what you have to get as far as my door and ask me for a job, maybe you've got the kind of determination that'll make you a good employee and and would make them an offer because they could see those characteristics instead of doing it with pity. No, I, and I think that's a uh, good point to bring up because pity is something that my father, his fellow vets, and I think even veterans today really despise. <laughs> they absolutely positively do not want to be pitied um, because I think their collective view is, you know, look, we've, we've withstood a lot. <laughs> we certainly don't need anybody's pity. We would like an opportunity and, and, and be afforded opportunities, but don't do so just out of pity for us. And as I think you you mentioned afford us an opportunity because you think that you have the resilience, we have fortitude to bring a lot to you know, any particular profession. And I think that's an attitude certainly that, that my, my father carried with him as he sort of struggled, I mentioned, in the early 50s to become a teacher. Um, you know, his view was that I can do this as well as anybody else can do. Um, he certainly was not looking for pity, but what I think he resented was not ever really being afforded a fair opportunity to to, to become a, a teacher. And then, as I mentioned, uh, got the job at, at Sears, and you know that I think wasn't given to him out of pity. I think it just was given to him because I thought you know, he was a sort of a conscientious young person who can do the job. And the ultimate benefit of I think working at Sears was that he really developed. So I think I mentioned the book, his people skills. He he really got good at working with people, hearing their issues, hearing their complaints. And, and it's something that I think really benefited him in later years when he was you know, able to work for those with vision loss. And what did you come away with or learn by writing this book? I uh, discovered I was, I was more like him than I thought. <laughs> and I sort of formed a, an idea of myself that uh, was... It was more aligned with with him, and and I think I trace my own, um, I think love and motivation to be in public service, which I am today, is directly after is a direct attribute of of my dad, and I uh, think I mentioned at the very end of the book there's this small newspaper clipping that announced his appointment by uh, by President uh, Clinton in 1990s to a uh, a commission position. 
overseeing purchases of, of materials from uh, those uh, facilities that are produced by those with vision loss. And, you know, it's something I kind of always kind of kept near my desk, but I just never realized why I was keeping this clip in there. And, you know, it wasn't until I finished this book, I realized that, you know, I, I was more closer to my dad than in, in sort of outlook and thought than I ever had thought about in the past until writing the book. And you know, the other part of your question about you know, growing up, he was you know, kind of more of a mystery to me. I mean, I knew he had done some brave things, but I just didn't have a very clear idea of exactly what. I knew he had been wounded during the war and he obviously had survived that. But it just had never dawned on me that you know, this was somebody who was, was truly an American hero. Now for this week's final item, how to reach Harry and how to get a copy of the book in a variety of formats. So maybe you can remind our listeners what the title of the book is and where they can get the book if they'd like to. The title of the book is uh, The Bravest Guy. It's a story of overcoming seemingly impossible odds. It uh, can be found uh, in its uh, print version through Amazon. Uh, it is also available in ebook version through uh, Kindle and through uh, Barnes and Noble and through uh, Kobo and through Smashwords. And I am happy also to announce that it is also available as a, an audiobook uh, through Audible. And uh, there's more information that could be found on it on a, on a website that I've dedicated to the book. It's uh, simply www.bravestguy.com. And if people want to reach you to ask questions or share experiences, how would they do that? I welcome to do that. And they can just contact me through email. And that's uh, harry at w-e-d-e-w-e-r-group.com. Uh, or you can just leave me a comment on the uh, the website that I mentioned, guy. Com, and I will be back in touch with you. And uh, I would add that on the website, I've actually posted some videos uh, of my father, uh, my interviews with him to kind of flesh out a little bit more of the story. So I, I hope uh, um, your listeners have a chance to go uh, listen in uh, to all of that. Do you have a social media presence? I do. Uh, I am on uh, Facebook as well. And uh, not a lot of Harry Wetterers out there. So uh and, and I would welcome, you know, comments about the book. Uh, I welcome uh, reviews on Amazon, um, you know, good, bad or otherwise, because I want this story to reach as many uh, people as possible. Um, and you know, my goal has always been if I can, you know, inspire one person who reads this story and uh, then, then my, my goal would have been that. And as usual, you can find any of the contact information about obtaining the book or contacting Harry by going to www.eyesonsuccess.net and looking for the show notes for this episode. That's it for show number 1730. Next week on Eyes on Success, we will be talking about our experiences moving cross-country, including some specific comments about what it was like for Pete as a totally blind person. We've been 
talking about this move for many, many weeks on the show, and we've finally done it, and several people asked us to talk about it as a special episode, and so that's next week. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.tiesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and on audioboom.com, at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.